Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Before we start, a very quick program note. This episode is part of a much longer series. To be sure you get the whole story, we recommend that you jump back and start from episode one. Also, we want to invite any of our thousands of listeners who still use Facebook to join our friendly show group, which currently only has a couple of hundred fun-loving folks. Just search for the show's name. Finally, whether you do social media or not, please do drop us a line to tell us what you like or hate on the show at theparanoidstrain, that's all one word, at gmail.com. Okay, let's get going. Paranoid Strain Orchestra, hit it. Getting back to our exploration of how the child sacrifice and exploitation conspiracy has its roots in the ancient past, here we move from the uneasy relationship of Jewish scripture with the history of the practice into some other notable points where this topic intersects with the evolution of Western, that is historically Christian, culture. First things first, it's worth remembering that even your garden variety, mainstream Christianity is in fact a religion built on the idea of human sacrifice. Hold on a second, Jess. Wait, that's... that's true. Isn't it? Any way you slice it, yeah. The early followers decided. Or Jesus told them in advance, depending on how literal you take the gospel accounts. That Jesus was tortured and killed as a sinless sacrifice that God made to himself. Trinitarian theology gets complicated. But if Jesus was also God, then it is technically God sacrificing himself to himself. So as to forgive the otherwise unforgivable sins of a reprobate humanity, all of whom were collectively accountable for Adam and Eve's original sin, and therefore doomed to burn eternally without said sacrifice. In essence, this was the end of the ancient tradition, both pagan and Jewish, of sacrificing animals and shares of your crops to the gods. Jesus was, in this theology, the ultimate perfect sacrifice, and so all you needed to do now was believe in that sacrifice and follow him. But that still means the only way that God would allow people's sins against him to be forgiven was a human sacrifice. But at least it was just like, the one. Right, and then there was the body and blood of Christ thing, especially in the literal Catholic transubstantiation, which adds a sousson of cannibalism to the whole affair. And we'll see more of that in the second point that we want to make here, which is, while the Christians would turn the accusation against the Jews once they were in power, it was originally the followers of Jesus themselves who were accused by the Romans of incest, human sacrifice, and cannibalism. To explain, we once again turn to one of the show's two favorite ancient historians, the brilliant Dr. Bart Ehrman. One of the best references to this comes from a Christian apology, which was written by a Christian named Octavius, who also lived in North Africa. Octavius gives an account of the charges leveled against Christians. The notoriety of the stories told of the initiations of new Christian recruits is matched by their ghastly horror. And this is what they're told to do with their new recruits. A young baby is covered with flour, the object being to deceive the unwary. It is then, then served before the person to be admitted into their rights. The recruit is urged to inflict blows upon it. 
They appear to be harmless because of the covering of flour. Thus the baby is killed with wounds that remain unseen and concealed. It is the blood of this infant that they lick with thirsty lips. These are the limbs they distribute eagerly. This is the victim by which they seal their covenant. It's by complicity in this crime that they are pledged to mutual silence. These are their rights, more foul than all sacrileges combined. He goes on to describe orgies that Christians engage in at night. People who are related to each other engaged in sexual activities together at night. What is this all about? Christians were widely charged with having incestuous orgies, with killing babies and eating them. Where did these charges come from? Remember, Christians were meeting in secret. They often had to meet at dark because they were of the lower classes. These are people who had to work during the day. They called each other brother and sister, and they were known to greet one another with a kiss. Brothers and sisters kissing in the dark? What's that all about? Rumors of incest fly. Moreover, they were known to eat the body and drink the blood of the Son of God. They're eating the body and drinking the blood of the Son? They're killing babies and eating them. The charges then were of incestuous orgies, infanticide, and cannibalism. Oh shit, Dana, that reminds me. Did you remember to set the TiVo for that new detective series set in the Roman Empire in the 2nd century CE? I did not, because TiVo hasn't been a thing in like a decade, and we live on different continents, and I'm pretty sure that show doesn't exist. Oh, it doesn't? Then how do I have this clip provided to us by the network? Oh no. No, Jesuit, not a skit. Too late. Okay, Publius, we just want to know why we have reports of you eating. What does it say on your tablet, Detective Gaius? I'll tell you what it says. It says this degenerate Christian fuck was eating a deep-fried toddler, Sergeant Sextus. And you know what, scumbag? It makes me want to puke! No, no, simmer down. I'm not going to crucify this one. Yet. Hey, keep that guy away from me. I don't even know what I'm doing here, man. I just left one of our prayer meetings, and as I gave the kiss of blessing to my sister in Christ, Antonia... Wait, you were kissing your sister? You're doing more than that, you sick piece of shit! Let me at him! It'll save the state the cost of a trial for this maggot! No, no, man, it's not my real sister. My blood sister's not even a Christian, man. It's just what we Christians call each other. The whole congregation. They're all my brothers and sisters in Jesus. I get it. Not your birth family, but your religious family. Exactly. So your whole big friendly church family eats baby butt butt. Gaius, curb stomp this dirt. Oh, Jesus Christ. It's worth noting here again that the persecution of Christians wasn't ubiquitous or generally mandated from the emperor down, as many modern Christians will suggest. More often it started with mobs blaming Christians for bad stuff that happened, assuming it was because those assholes wouldn't worship the gods of the Roman state, which gods were therefore pissed and taking it out on everyone else. But a number of Christians were in fact martyred for their beliefs. In many cases, their genuine actual beliefs, not just those manufactured by the imperial Briscoe and Green he just presented. Of course, in the wake of the conversion of Constantine and the eventual domination of Christianity over the whole empire, the worry about sexual and child-abusing immorality among a religious minority shifted gradually from the targeting of Christians by pagans to the persecution of Jews by ascendant Christians. The reason for Christian hatred of Jews dates back to some complicated theological developments in early Christianity that all kind of boil down to the Christian self-serving conclusion that the Jews killed the Messiah that their God had sent to save them and therefore were the worst possible kind of apostate criminals. So no matter what you did to them, they deserved worse. 
Dr. Sledge walks us through the impacts of those beliefs and how they eventually became a cornerstone of the entire epistemology we now consider conspiracy thinking. There is no modern conspiracy theories without anti-Semitism. They basically function on a backbone of anti-Semitism, and unsurprisingly, most conspiracy theories are just nakedly anti-Semitism. So how did this happen? Well, the main component is to be really starting to find it in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, I don't want to say that Christianity is somehow inherently anti-Semitic or anything like that. I don't believe that, and I don't think that's true. But there's a moment in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus is uh, being put on trial, and Pilate says, who do you guys want to crucify? And they, there's a famous line where he says, you know, crucify him, crucify him, let his blood be on our hands and on the hands of our children. And that establishes a biblical New Testament basis for the idea that the Jewish people as a composite group are somehow responsible for the execution of Jesus. This is the origin of the so-called Christ killer myth, the idea of deicide. The Jews as a group of people are now corporately responsible for this titanic crime. You have to have that component to get a conspiracy theory off the ground because you need everyone in on it. It's not enough to have some people doing some bad stuff. It has to be hoi yehudoi, the Jews. Early Christianity is highly polemical religion. They're very much in the business of arguing against people who don't agree with them, whether it's the so-called Gnostics or Jewish people or other kind of pagans. Ironically enough, what ends up happening is that the same kinds of mythological ideas that are actually put on the Jews originally, things like human sacrifice by the Greeks, and the Romans, who also heap a lot of disdain at the early Christians and accuse them of all kinds of nefarious things like killing babies and cannibalism and, and catacombs and things like this, those tropes get reversed and actually get applied by Christians onto Jews and other heterodox Christians, people like the Gnostics. What we'll see over and over again is through Christian history, when Christianity needs to deal with an enemy, what it will do is it'll rehash those same tropes, incest or cannibalism or that they're secretly killing people or something like that. Over the course of the centuries, as Christianity wears on into the Middle Ages, this gets heaped upon dissident Christians, people like the Cathars, assuming the Cathars existed, certainly the Waldensians, who certainly existed, they still exist, and also Jewish people. And this takes the form of the blood libel. Also, well poisoning was a big thing Jews were accused of doing all over Europe, being responsible for the Black Death. This sets up basically a trope where the Jews as a group of people all through Europe are engaging in basically ritual murder, specifically ritual murder of children. And there are various versions of why this ritual murder is happening. In some versions, it's part of a ritual to go back to the Holy Land. That's the earlier version. The later versions typically are killing children in order to get blood to make matzah during Passover. Some other versions actually have it. They're just killing people as mockery of the execution of Jesus. They're crucifying people in secret, which seems like a quite difficult thing to do, actually. Hard to keep that kind of thing under wraps. And so what you get is this idea that the Jews are not just blind and sinful people, but they are also anti-Christian. As a group, they are actively working in the interest of destabilizing and attempting to destroy Christianity. And at the same time that that's developing and the anti-Cathar stuff is developing, there's a move toward the idea that not only are the Jews involved in this, but also there is a completely new heretical movement, primarily led by women. This is the witches that will eventually be hunted down by things like Malleus Maleficarum and other documents. And there we just see, again, many of the same ideas that were originally tossed at Jews, then tossed at other heterodox Christians, now really fomenting into the witch hunts beginning sometime around 1400 or so. It's in those cases where you get the idea that a vast group of people, specifically this witch cult, is entering into packs with the devil, meeting in giant meetings, secret meetings in the night. They're flying there, depending on the myth. 
They're sacrificing babies and using the fat of those babies for various kinds of flying ointments or ungents. They're using magic to cause crops to fail. They're doing all of this as part of the devil's final sort of outrage against God on the, on the eve of the apocalypse. In fact, in some versions of the witch hunt narrative, the devil's actually attempting to forestall the apocalypse, and he's using all this outrage in order to forestall the apocalypse. So the witch hunts, anti-Semitism, all of this stuff is wrapped up, and it's with that machinery that you're going to see the conspiracy theories that will emerge later, whether they're the anti-Semitic conspiracy theories like the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, where Jews secretly control the world or Hollywood or whatever. Being Jewish myself, my the joke I always say is that the Jews secretly control the world, I'm missing my check. Really would love to get my check. The International Jewish Conspiracy. One of the biggest moments for the development and dissemination of the blood libel conspiracy theory was the 12th century murder of William of Norwich. Professor Miri Rubin of Queen Mary University, London, walks us through the basics of the crime. On Easter Friday, 1144, the body of a boy was found in Thorpe Wood, just outside the city of Norwich. Henry, a man from the village of Sprouse to just two miles beyond uh, the city, had stumbled across the body in its shallow grave. He noticed it was a boy wounded all over, but being in haste to get to Norwich for Easter confession and the other celebrations, he covered it and left it until a later time. And good to his word, he returned on Easter Monday with the priest of his own village, of his own parish church, and with his family. News of the discovery soon spread in the city. A married priest called Godwin identified the boy as his lost nephew, William, a 12-year-old apprentice Skinner who'd gone missing during Holy Week. The complaint was brought to the bishop that the boy has been found and there's reason to think that he had been killed by Jews. The bishop acted properly by summoning the sheriff, the royal official charged with all issues related to the Jews as sheriffs were, to answer for their alleged guilt. The sheriff appeared and denied any truth to the accusation, both in terms of Jewish motivations, why would they want to do it, and in terms of the available evidence, there was none, and he was the top legal official of the county. There was no legal basis for a case to be brought against the Jews, so he dismissed the issue. Still, for good measure, he housed the Norwich Jews in his headquarters, Norwich Castle, for their own protection. And our author claims that he did so because the Jews had actually bribed him with a hundred marks of civil. So you may wonder how indeed I know so much about the affair, how we know about the affair. Our sole source is a work authored by a monk who had joined Norwich Cathedral Priory around 1150, so that is six years after the events I've just recounted. This was Thomas of Monmouth. And here is the problem. Almost everything we know about the events of 1144 surrounding the boy's death and the accusation of the Jews, which led to the invention, finally, of an infamous and enduring anti-Jewish narrative, is made available to us through the survival of a sole manuscript. The work, you see here, is 77 folios long, and it told in 44,500 Latin words the story that we will investigate here. Its author called the work a vita et passio, as we see, a life and passion, that is an account of a life unto its death, a very special death, like Christ's own and that of his martyrs. But it also includes sections we may call polemical. As she just noted, our only resource for information on the murder, its motivations, and its aftermath is that one book written by a monk who arrived at the local monastery six years after the event. She goes on to paint Monmouth's narrative as, and I'm quoting here, presenting him as a detective re-examining a cold case. If you're a fan of the novels of Umberto Eco or the mid-80s oeuvre of Sean Connery, then no doubt you're calling to mind the character William of Baskerville, 
Echo is meticulous medieval monk detective in The Name of the Rose. Unfortunately, the real-life detective monk leaves a lot to be desired in the impartial examination department. Indeed, because far from examining all possible motives and perpetrators, Monmouth locks in on one unquestioned central fact. That being, the Jews did it. And instead of trying to identify an actual perpetrator, it moves swiftly into creating a motive for these purported miscreants to have perpetrated this horrible crime. Note that there is no need to identify a specific perpetrator. A sweeping, the Jews, is more than sufficient. Anyway, Monmouth expends a lot of ink trying to make his grand Jewish plot narrative believable, stating the boy was well-known to local Jewish people as a skilled repairer of fur hats, collars, and similar articles, and that the detective himself learned from local Jews who later converted to Christianity that the Jewish community had been plotting for years to perpetrate a crime just like this. Of course, he's clearly a rabid anti-Semite, and we have nothing in the way of evidence for any of what he's saying except his own word, so we're going to assume most or all of this is self-serving codswallop. Then we get to the supposed plot itself. First, one of the crafty criminals convinces the boy and his mother that the lad is needed as kitchen help for a local church during Holy Week. To explain the importance of this, a quick digression in this version of The Lightning Round. 180 seconds on the clock, and start. Holy Week is the Catholic term for the week before Easter, the celebration of Christ's resurrection. So Easter Sunday is the date when the disciples are reported to have discovered the empty tomb, but the preceding Friday, known as Good Friday, marks the date of the crucifixion. That is, the date that Christ died. Now, this is important, because the whole reason Jesus was in Jerusalem that week in the first place was because he had deliberately ventured to the holy city of the Jews to proclaim his message during Passover. Wait, I guess we have to describe Passover, so double lightning round! Passover is the annual celebration of the miracle by which the Jews, exiled in Egypt following Moses' instructions, painted the blood of sacrificed lambs on the doorways of their houses. Then the angels Yahweh sent to murder the firstborn of every family in Egypt as punishment for their intransigence in not releasing the Jewish people from their bondage. Those angels passed over the houses marked with lamb's blood, meaning the firstborn of the faithful Jews were saved. Holy shit, there's a lot of blood and murder in the Bible, isn't there? A surprising amount, yes, unicorn. But I'm on a timer here. Anyway, in the centuries since this lamb's blood non-murder thing supposedly happened... There's no real evidence that there ever was a large-scale Jewish exile in Egypt. Religious Jews have celebrated said miracle with a week of prayer and feasting called the Passover that starts with a large Seder meal on the first night. Okay, first digression over. Back to digression level one. So, and this is well-grounded historically, Jesus wanted to announce the coming kingdom of God in front of the largest possible audience. Thus, he went to the biggest Jewish city at the time of year when pilgrims would be traveling there to celebrate Passover. And so, by the time he had pissed off the Roman authorities and been condemned to death, the Passover season was in full swing. Now, part of the celebration of Passover was the sacrifice of a lamb that would then be the centerpiece of that first night Seder meal we referenced earlier. Christian theology evolved to see Jesus as the ultimate Passover lamb. Depending on which gospel you read, he was crucified and died either on the day of Passover or the day of preparation for Passover, like the day before. So regardless, he came to be seen as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the sacrifice that only needed to happen once, and that replaced all future sacrifices forever. 
That's also why the celebration of the Easter resurrection has historically tracked pretty closely to the ongoing Jewish celebration of Passover, even though they're based on different calendars. For example, in 2022, Easter Sunday was April 17th, and the first day of Passover was the 15th, which means it was literally on Good Friday. It's not often these holidays so closely aligned to the New Testament chronology, but it sometimes happens. And we're done with the lightning round. So we only told you all of that because it's important for understanding the horrible slander that Monmouth is about to make on the Jewish people. And so back to our story. As the boy goes with the conspirators to work in a Christian kitchen for the Feast of Holy Week, he is then seized, tortured, and murdered by the local Jewish community in a parody of the crucifixion. His body was supposedly found with a crown of thorns on his head. Now, why would they do this? Well, I mean, they didn't. No, of course they didn't. But why was Monmouth saying they did? Again, Professor Rubin has the explanation, reading from Monmouth's book. Theobald, who was once a Jew and later one of our monks, that is a convert, told us that Jews could not achieve their freedom nor ever return to the lands of their fathers without the shedding of human blood. Hence it was decided by them a long time ago that every year, to the shame and front of Christ, a Christian somewhere on earth be sacrificed to the highest God. And so they take revenge for the injuries of him whose death is the reason for their exclusion from their father. Leaders and rabbis of the Jews who dwell in Spain at Narbonne meet together and cast lots of all the regions where Jews live. Whichever region was chosen by lot, its capital city had to apply that lot then to the other cities and towns, and the one whose name came up will carry out the business, as decreed. In that year, however, when the glorious martyr of God, William, was killed, it so happened that the lot fell on the men of Norwich. So the Jews supposedly cast lots in secret, determined which town must conduct the human sacrifice, and then they secretly and ritually murdered a Christian child as revenge on the sacrifice of Jesus, which is apparently the thing that keeps them out of their holy land. That makes absolutely no sense. Of course it does not. But, unfortunately, this explanation of the boy's death proved far more popular and influential than Thomas of Monmouth could possibly have imagined. Over the subsequent century, his narrative spread from monastery to monastery, town to town, with stories of Jews murdering Christians leading to mob violence against local Jewish communities, not just in England, but eventually throughout Christian Europe. Eventually, the narrative evolved to the point that instead of just crucifying the Christian child, the perfidious Jews also drained his blood because it's the secret ingredient in matzah, the unleavened bread that religious Jews eat during Passover as a symbol of the fact that their ancestors were forced to flee Egypt so quickly they couldn't wait for the yeast in the bread to rise. Once again, and do we really have to tell you this? There is no blood in matzah. It's just another awful conspiracy slur against Jewish people. Of course, but it was one more way to otherize Jews and turn them into an easily persecutable and exploitable subclass throughout Europe. It also, as Justin Sledge pointed out to us, proved incredibly malleable, a conspiracy theory for any situation in which those who saw themselves as representing Christian civilization could apply the same fears and accusations to whomever they were then confronting, including, as we noted in our historical political conspiracy series, Native Americans. So this is all wrapped up together. Protocols, right? And again, even with modern QAnon stuff with the globalist or whatever, which is just cover for basically Jews, you know, it's Soros or whatever Jew they pick out of the, of the hat. It's, you know, harvesting children for adrenochrome or secret tunnels beneath daycare centers. If you look at the kind of accusations that get levied in these uh, panics, it's almost exactly some repackaged version of either the witch hunt legends or the anti-Cathar legends or the blood libel legend. You rearrange the deck chairs in the Titanic, right? You get some version of, of how to ruin people's lives. 
But the stock tropes of these conspiracy theories are just baked into the Western imagination. This is how we frame our enemies. Even the way that Native Americans were framed was informed by how witches were framed. If you look at early woodcuts of witches, like roasting children and doing all these dreadful things at the witches' Sabbath, and you look at the earliest depictions of Native Americans, it's clear that they're basing depictions of Native Americans, these horrible cannibal savages, they're basing them on the depictions of the witches. Now, what I don't want to make it sound like is that there's actually a conspiracy of conspiracy theories where you know, Alex Jones is sitting down with the Malice Maleficarum being like, I wonder if it really is that these guys are doing this. But I will say that it sounds crazy, but it is the case that during the satanic panic in the 80s, the evangelical Christians were consulting medieval inquisitorial manuals to understand, you know, this is our first rodeo. We've had to fight the devil in the past. And they're like consulting 15th century witch hunting manuals. Continuing Dr. Sledge's trip down paranoid strain memory lane, he shows us how early church teaching, plus the way the church confronted what it saw as the heretical Cathar menace, see the relevant sections of our secret society series, led eventually to the persecution of witches. In the Christian world, in the Middle Ages at least, the early church fathers, the apostolic fathers, are their bread and butter. If you need to know what's going on in the world, there's nothing new in the world for these people. It's just the same devil doing the same things. And so if, if St. Augustine's already dealt with this, well, go see what Augustine said. The appeal to authority is so strong in the Middle Ages that you have Irenaeus having dealt with so-called Manichees or, or Augustine dealing with Manichaeans or whatever. They just rehash it. The Apostolic Fathers are really going to be the bread and butter of people like Bernard Guy and Nicholas Emmerich. And these are the guys that will form the kernel of these inquisitional manuals. People find it tedious, and it is very tedious, that you'll be reading Malleus Maleficarum or Directorium Inquisitorum, and they're just long quotations from Apostolic Fathers, but that's because their fundamental argument is this is nothing new, it's just repackaged. When you get into tracing out how this developed, you know, how we go from magic simply being a sin to magic being a heresy and magic doers being organized to like in a certain kind of way. And it wasn't all magic doers. There were all kinds of people practicing all kinds of magic that were never prosecuted under the witchcraft acts. Just engaging in necromancy even, right? Straight up, you know, conjuring demons. That's sinful, but you're not in a pact with the devil to overthrow Christianity. That's what the inquisitors thought that the witches were. It was heresy as sedition, not, oh, you're just a sinful person summoning demons. And you can count on one hand almost how many people were executed for what we might think of as like actual necromancy. But between 40 and 60,000 women were executed, many, many more imprisoned and things like this. But this is, again, this is a conspiracy theory. You have people like Nicholas Emmerich, or you have people like Bernard Guy in the, in the case of the Cathars, or Malleus Maleficarum and the Formicarius by Johann Snyder. You have these people basically formulating in their minds what's going on, and then torturing people to find the answers. And of course, torture someone enough, you'll get the answer. And then it reinforces itself, right? A witch hunter could buy a copy of Malleus Maleficarum, could read it, walk into a village like Matthew Hopkins did, and he could say, basically, has anything bad happened here? Well, it's... 1470. Of course, bad things are happening. Like, it's awful. And then the process begins. The easiest way to get out of being prosecuted is to name other people. And you get these chain reactions like we had Salem or in Connecticut. So with our historical lens focused, we're finally ready to discuss the end result of those hundreds of years of moral panics, the uniquely Satan-obsessed era of the 1980s and early 1990s in the United States and Canada. We just covered the way that fears of satanic conspiracies involving child sacrifice have flared up throughout the past few thousand years of Judeo-Christian history. 
And also, I understand that many of you are too young to remember this, but there's just no question that during that era, the 80s and early 90s, the obsession with this topic shifted into overdrive. As to why this was the case, Dr. Sledge has a thoughtful answer. I think that what caused the satanic panic beginning in the 80s has everything to do with the post-war decline of the United States. In the same way that the Black Death, in many ways, cracked European civilization, and it's in the aftermath of the Black Death that we see the witch hunts, I think that ditto is the case in America, where we have a pretty systematic decline in America's prestige. By the 60s, the Vietnam War is clearly a disaster. By the 70s, we're sailing into significant recessions. The world oil crisis really is hitting America hard. The recession of the early 80s was the worst recession since the Great Depression. Unemployment rates were lowest at that point than they were since the Great Depression. And it's really bizarre to think how bad the recession was in the early 80s. Because I think we have this image of Wall Street getting rich or something, like the greed is good. And of course, those guys were getting rich, but the average working class Americans were doing quite poorly. That in the combination of, I think, this sort of pining away for an earlier time where everything made sense and everyone was Christian and it was an Andy Griffith show or whatever, I think that ushered in the ages of Thatcher and Reagan. Even with Thatcher and Reagan in there, the situation continued to deteriorate. The recession continued to get worse. And I think it was the combination of all of those things, a breakdown of social norms, even with like the hippies and stuff in the 60s, a breakdown of homogeneity in terms of what it meant to be an American. The social and economic breakdown that was going on through the early 80s, religious breakdown, family breakdowns. This is also the rise of the stranger danger phenomenon, which I think is very much tied to the satanic panic. You have people who are honest to goodness, just willing to rebel against it. You have people who are into heavy metal. You have people who are into nonconformity, like the punk movement and things like that. And I think that there was a cross section of the population that really needed something to explain why things were going so badly. And conspiracy theories always function in those kinds of environments where things are going badly for whatever reason, something terrible happens, I don't know, 9-11 or what have you, something terrible happens, society is actually in a decline. And the easiest way for most people to explain it is there's one singular thing at fault, and it's the devil or Satanism or, or whatever. It's a kind of mental virus that really begins, I think, in the twilight of American political and economic hegemony. In areas in which the recession wasn't that bad, the panics weren't that bad. And as we roll into the 90s, not that the panic totally went away, but you don't have the same level of the kind of mass arrests and things like that that you saw typically through the 80s. As we get into the late 90s and as America comes out of this mess, at least with the dot-com bubble, the panic basically goes away, or at least in some form. American society was experiencing a kind of breakdown. And in those kinds of environments where people feel like their lives and livelihoods are being threatened... Picking out an enemy, whether it's the communists or the Satanists or whatever, that becomes a very attractive way of explaining why your whole town is falling apart. Well, it's the devil worshippers or something.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.